0: Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Alexander Rose, author of the fascinating new book, The Lion and the Fox, Two Rival Spies and the Secret Plot to Build a Confederate Navy. Alexander is the author of Washington Spies, the basis for an AMC drama series called Turn Washington Spies, on which he served as a writer and producer, as well as several other nonfiction books. He was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2020 and is a fellow at the Royal Historical Society. He also writes the historical intelligence newsletter Spineage at Substack. Alexander Rose, welcome to That Said.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So I like to start these interviews by asking the first question always, tell us about yourself. So can you fill us in?
1: Well, uh, ooh, I'll try and, in, in a nutshell, I was uh, born in New York and I went to school in Australia and then I went to England. Uh, and then I sort of circumnavigated my way back to the mother country about, I don't know, about 20 years ago, I think. Uh, so right now I'm, you know, just in, in New York and, uh, and, you know, I used to be a journalist. Uh, and then I got out of that racket and went into the, the history business. Uh, probably around uh, 2006 or so. So you know, and I you know I've written several books since. This one is the sixth one, and then that's you know. So these days I'm just a professional sort of historical journeyman. I guess you could call me.
0: Well, it's it's nice to be an historical journeyman. I, I think. <laughs> yeah, because uh, your books are really interesting. So well, I- how how did you how did you come to choose this topic? It's a little bit off the beaten path in a way.
1: Um, well, well, it's sort of, yes, and it, but it's also coming around full circle. You could, <laughs> there's two ways you could look at it. You know, my second book was Washington Spies, which came out, I think, uh, in 2006 or so. And uh, after that came out, I was looking around for another book subject. And, you know, what, what most writers tend to do is they write down whatever they have an idea and they write it down. And they scribble it down, they put it in a file somewhere. And all of these ideas, of course, are genius ideas that are going to make them millions of dollars. And then you come back to them later on and you think, uh, this is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. And no one would buy this. And, you know, was I drunk when I wrote this? But this idea of this, and that's what happens with the veterinarian. <laughs> 95% of the ones in my folder, is that with this one, I wrote it around that time. And it was another spy book, another historical intelligence book, kind of almost like a sequel to Washington Spies. Washington Spies took place obviously during the War of Independence, and this one was going to be during the Civil War. And I wrote it down, and I, I had an idea for it. I, I don't know if you uh, recall the old uh, Mad Magazine strip, Spy versus Spy, where you had the sort of the white spy and the black spy, and they were sort of tangling with each other you know, in their sort of eternal struggle for mastery. And I had this idea about these, I, and I had read about this union agent and a Confederate agent in England during the Civil War. And so I, I had this idea of, oh, it's just going to be spy versus spy. So I had that vision from the very, very beginning, from 2007 or so. So I wrote it down. Uh, and then I went on to other things. I, you know, I wrote several books uh, on, you know, various subjects Uh, And the reason is I didn't that I didn't get immediately back to this one is because I couldn't work out how to break it. I mean, I just it's such a complicated story. You know, there you know, there's a lot of overlapping timelines. There's a lot of uh, characters that takes place uh, you know, in Liverpool, not in America. I wanted to find out about who the spies were and what you know. There's a lot of material there. And I couldn't work out how to tell the story. You have to structure a book. Um, in your head before you even start. I mean, you've got to know where you're going to stop before you start, sort of thing. And it was only, I think, I must have been uh, 2019 or so that I, I sort of finally came back to it, and I, I worked out how to crack this story. And that is, it's very simple. It's a essentially a three phase or three stage book. Uh, the first section was going to be, and it was all very usefully alliterative It was going to be on the runners, that is, the blockade runners. The second was going to be uh, the raiders, uh, the, the commerce raiders. And the third was going to be the ironclad rams. And, you know, once I had that, then everything began to fall into place. And then it became, it was a, you know, you know it was a very fast write. It was about, I'd say, from beginning to end, about 10 months. Mm-hmm. So, one, you know, once you have that structure, you can just zip through something very quickly. So, uh, so that's essentially uh, how it came about.
0: Interesting. So it gestated for years and years. And then you finally cracked the code and wrote it in 10 months. Interesting. Really interesting.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't say gestated. It just kind of stagnated in a folder somewhere.
0: (laughs) (laughs) For me, that's gestation.
1: Desperation for another idea. I I had another look through and I thought, oh, this could work. Yeah.
0: You've got two primary characters and then you've got Liverpool in the 1860s, which is really the overlay in which all of this action takes place. So when I think of Liverpool obviously it's uh, John Paul George and Ringo but they weren't around in the 1860s and so tell us what Liverpool in the 1860s the bloody spot as you call
1: it was. Yeah that's a great question. We do have this image of Liverpool in our heads nowadays and that is you know it's the it's the city of the Beatles it's this uh, the city of Liverpool United and all this great football clubs and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I had to make it very clear from the very beginning that Liverpool in the 1860s was completely unlike any of that. That is a very modern conception of Liverpool. Liverpool in the 1860s was essentially the world's grandest and most powerful port metropolis. I mean, there were more ships built in Liverpool each year than in the rest of the world combined. It was also uh, where the cotton exchange was, one of the world's, possibly the world's first futures exchange, where they bought and sold cotton, which was the sort of the lifeblood of the uh, textile mills and, and Manchester and Lancashire. And, of course, of, of the Dixie South. It was extremely wealthy. It was very powerful. Uh, it was almost like a city, like a Renaissance city state unto itself. And so it was a completely different place from the, the kind of the slightly rougher type of Liverpool that people think of nowadays. And it was also a massively booming city. I think if you'd gone to Liverpool in, you know, 1820 or something like that, and then you'd come back in 1860, that the city would have quadrupled or quintupled in size. There were tens of thousands of Irish immigrants, for instance, and there were people coming in. It was the, the results of the industrial revolution, the hundreds of thousands of people from the rural England and Scotland coming into Liverpool for the sailing jobs and the manufacturing jobs and the coven jobs and just everything was there. But it was and it was also a city of, you know, a huge, a colossal amount of crime. I mean, more murderous than anything you would find pretty much anywhere nowadays. There was, you know, the sort of the 19th century equivalent of opioid crises was basically rot, gut, rum and booze. I mean, it was the, the amount of violent crime, booze fueled violent crime was off the charts. It was bigger than I think the, the next five cities combined. And, but, but again, right next to that, it would be this amazingly wealthy, powerful, mercantile power. You know, it's almost like, uh, in, you know, in Blade Runner where you have, you know, the very, very rich and then you have the very, very poor. It was essentially like that. And there's no middle class whatsoever.
0: You're right that the scale of poverty had four gradations, the almost poor. The poor, the very poor, and the permanently destitute.
1: Yeah, those are the official classifications. They were very analytical about it.
0: So into this Dickens-like city, this tale of two cities, city, you have your principal protagonists. So why don't we start with the fox, James Bullock, and tell us who he was, sort of before the outbreak of the Civil War, and then what mission did uh, Attorney General Judah Benjamin and Confederate Navy Secretary Stephen Mallory offer him?
1: Uh, Bullock was a sort of an old-time Georgia boy. Uh, you know, his family had been in Georgia for, you know, several generations. They'd always been slaveholders. Bullock himself didn't spend much time there. I mean, he, he went to boarding school, I think, in Connecticut uh when he was about 11 or 12 or maybe 13 uh and a couple of years after that he entered the uh United States Navy as a as a junior officer and that was his career he joined the sort of the old navy of of you know sail and you know as it was moving into the steam age and you know he had a perfectly respectable career in the navy as he as he rose up but the you know, the US Navy you know before the civil war was a very slow promotion ladder i mean you could be a lieutenant for I mean, literally 35 years, 40 years before, before being promoted. That was how slow it was. So I think around in the 1850s, he kind of gets tired of the whole thing. And he, as many people do, you know, as many officers do, he goes into private business to make some money. And he becomes a steamship captain for a, a sort of a New York firm. He lives in New York, by the way. And, you know, he's, he, he, all of his interests are in New York. Uh, and he basically commands a, a male steamship essentially between New York and Havana for many years. Um, he also learns a lot of uh, interesting things, such as he is asked by his company to go and design and commission some modern steamships for the company, which gives him some very you know, would later become very invaluable experience in working in a dockyard and dealing with ships contracts with and designs and so forth, which are these, you know, very, very inordinately complex negotiations and, and financing and so on. And very few people are, especially naval officers, have that kind of background. Um, and then at the beginning of the war, you know, he writes in his own memoirs, he kind of he, all of his interests, he says, were in the north. None of them were in the south. But, you know, his heart was with Georgia and he resigns his job. At the uh, New York Steamship Company, and he's thinking about like, joining the Confederate Navy as a kind of an officer because they were crying out for experienced uh, officers and but then he gets picked up by and, and sort of recruited into the secret world with admission from uh, as you mentioned the Navy secretary Mallory, and he's told that this is the mission that could save the South, and what we're going to do is we're going to send you to Britain and your job is to acquire, buy, commission, design, a clandestine Confederate Navy and bring it back here. And then we're going to, that's going to help win the war. That's, that's, that's your secret mission.
0: And tell us a little bit about the necessity to stand up a Confederate Navy, because you think of the Civil War as Gettysburg and Vicksburg and all these great land battles. Mm -hmm. But this book takes place on the great oceans of the world. So why did the Confederate Navy secretary want
1: a Navy? Well, that's, that's a great question. And then, uh, that's one of the things I wanted to get away from. I mean, I've written on the, on Gettysburg before uh, I wanted to get away. This is one of the other things that attracted me to writing about this. And that is it takes place in Britain and it's an, it's a Navy book rather than a book about the blue and the gray at Gettysburg and all this kind of stuff. But so the thing is the war on the waters during the civil war is not really adequately covered, as you say, mostly because the vast amount of, majority of the attention is paid to the land war. But like any kind of, any kind of maritime history that, you know, the maritime aspect is actually just as important, even sometimes even more important strategically than the land war. And, for Confederate purposes, when they started the war, they were in a terrible position. They had, I think, one blue water ship. That was it. Uh the US Navy, for you know, which had obviously was Lincoln's, you know, it was in better shape. And it wasn't it wasn't the you know, the force that the US Navy would later become after nineteen forty five. But you know, so it was kind of an old, slightly raggedy force. that had, you know, ten or eleven frigates, all that kind of stuff. But whatever it was, it was a lot more than the Confederates had. What the Confederates did have was a very enthusiastic, high morale, very talented bunch of former U.S. Navy officers like Bullock who were, you know, peachy keen to go. Uh They just didn't have any ships. So they have to go get one. And the only place where you could buy and they didn't have the industrial capacity. That's important to make one themselves. First, because ships take a very, very long time to build. And secondly, they just simply didn't have the abilities in the South to there were the facilities rather to uh, build something specialist like marine steam engines they didn't have uh you know you know, nearly all of the um, the country's deep water docks um, and shipyards were in the north and so on so they they just didn't they couldn't build one very quick. so they needed to get one quickly and the best place to get that to do that was to just buy one from uh in Britain. And specifically Liverpool, where they made a lot of ships, and it was a very, very pro-Confederate city. So Bullock, as far as he was concerned, was just going to go. You know, he was going into friendly territory, and he was just going to, you know, buy, acquire, and design this navy for for the South.
0: And in addition, however, besides the U.S. Navy having forty-two-ish ships and the Confederate Navy having one. There is the matter of the naval blockade, and that also drives the imperative for the South. So, tell us about Lincoln's Southern blockade.
1: Uh, the, the, the blockade was uh, was declared by Lincoln at the outbreak of the more or less at the outbreak of the war. Uh, it, it makes uh, it makes Bullock's mission unexpectedly difficult because <laughs> he wasn't expecting it, and it, I think the news is announced as he's on the ship going to Britain. So he only finds out about it a couple of weeks after it's happened. But what the blockade was, was that Lincoln imposed this blockade and uh, of something, you know, several thousand miles worth of coastline, you know, all the way from you know, Virginia to the Gulf of Mexico uh, with this little small U.S. Navy. And what he was going to do is, is he was going to sh- strangle the South and, you know, he was going to prevent it's cotton exports on which it relied for its financing and, and to raise money for, you know, munitions and all this kind of and other imports. Uh, he was going to strangle it and it was going to be an attritional blockade. Now, there's a couple of problems with this in that as, as, as you said, there's, you know, at maximum 42, 42 ships, uh, a few frigates. There's 2000 miles of coastline. Now, this is an impossibility as the South pointed out. This is a blockade that can be run. And penetrated and pierced very, very easily. So the South, and so, and here's the thing, there was, uh, in the, I think in the 1850s, there was an international treaty which stated uh, regarding blockade, naval blockades like this, that if they were not effective, that is, they couldn't be shown to outsiders to be, you know, a, a proper, like almost a wall, then outside powers didn't have to pay attention to them. You can't basically you just can't say, Oh, here's a. I'm imposing a blockade, right? Everyone stop trading with the with the South. You can't do that. That's what Lincoln was trying to do. So what the South does is is that it just it just needs to create, and this is part of Bullock's job, to create a swarm of fast, small, fleety blockade runners to go zip in and out of the South all over the place, which would show to the British and the French and and anyone else that this was a paper blockade easily hold, and so it would just fall apart. And on the northern side, they quickly worked out that, in fact, they don't have to blockade 2,000 miles of coast. There's just four or five or six uh ports that the south uses, like Charleston and New Orleans. You blockade those, you can cut off 99% of the international traffic anyway, which is doable. So it becomes this this great struggle between the north and the south about the north trying to impose this blockade around several ports, and the South just making sure that they can get in and out as quickly as possible to show it up as, as being ridiculous. But you know, so there's a, there's a lot to play for here, because if the if the blockade can be shown to be you know this ridiculous pretension, as Jefferson Davis used to used to sort of say about it, uh, you know one of Lincoln's ridiculous uh, you know ideas, um, then you know having it there would annoy the British, and the British at the time were the world's hyperpower. And the Royal Navy is, is, you know, by exponentially larger than any other Navy afloat. I and mean, it's just, it's colossal. And they don't like Lincoln that much anyway, because they're free traders and he was regarded as a tariff man. So he, they regarded this whole blockade as, as one of Lincoln's stratagems to gain an economic advantage over them, not the South. <laughs> so, so what the South wants to do is, is penetrate and, and hold this blockade. And hopefully the Royal Navy would intervene at some point on the Confederate side. And there would be this kind of grand Anglo Confederate alliance. And that would finally send this, the awful Lincoln, you know, back to where he came from. So that was, it was a great strategic play. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a lot to, you know, and this, you know, the, the outcome of the war can depend on what happens here at sea, not on the land.
0: So you have the blockade preventing weapons from entering the US, preventing cotton, sort of the lifeblood of the financial well-being of the South in place. And it's, as you said, Bullock's mission to figure out a way around that. So in that, you have the fox, the spy, the mission. On the counter side of it, in your... Spy, spy. You've got one, Thomas Dudley. Who
1: was he? Thomas Dudley was the exact opposite of James Bullock. Bullock was a very devious, very cunning, very charming uh, fellow. You know, he, he had no real fixed politics or ideology. You know, he sort of he was a, he was a very good master manipulator and, and you know very very clever. Uh, Thomas Dudley. And he was also very witty and amusing and ironic. That was that was one of the interesting things about Bullock. It's almost as if he enjoyed sort of twirling his mustache kind of thing. Whereas Thomas Dudley was completely different. I mean, Thomas Dudley, I read thousands of pages of Thomas Dudley's uh, reports and letters and notes and so on. And at no point did I ever uh, discern even the slightest degree of a sense of humor. I mean, just nothing. He had one of those gigantic... You know, 19th century Victorian beards. And he was an, an ascetic sort of, you know, a Quaker from New Jersey, very modest background. His father had died very young. Again, very unlike Bullock who, you know, his people were pretty affluent, uh, and upper class. Uh, Dudley's weren't. I mean, he put himself through law school, local law school, I think in Trenton. And he had a lo- little local, uh, you know, business, uh, law practice before the war. But he was, he was extremely, um, well, it's the reason I call him the lion. He was extremely leonine in the sense that he, owing to his Quaker faith, I mean, he had a rigidity about abolitionism that was in the 1840s and 1850s was, was really pretty extraordinary, even for the time. I mean, Dudley would do things like dress up in what he believed to be a, a sort of southern slave trader outfit, which essentially consisted of a, of a rather large silly hat and a whip and a pistol. And he would go. Down south under, as he believed, undercover and basically buy up, uh, slaves who would be, or newly enslaved uh, blacks who had been kidnapped from New Jersey and other free states, uh, and brought down south and they were going to be taken down to the, you know, the, the deep south plantations and, the, and they'd never be heard of again. Uh, he would go down there and he'd buy them or he'd try and rescue them and he'd bring them back. And that was a really dangerous thing to do. <laughs> if you think about it, it's a, you know, very, very, uh, risky adventure. He's very into Republican politics in the 1850s, you know, on a radical Republican ticket. And uh, during Lincoln's nomination, he pulls some strings in, in the back room uh, at the convention. And he essentially persuades the New Jersey delegation to switch its votes from, I can't remember his name, that sort of their favored son, to Lincoln. And so, the, you know, for the signal service, a few months later, Lincoln, you know, says, you know, it's time for, you know, thanks for helping out, Thomas. You know, what would you like? You can be ambassador to Japan or you can be consul to Liverpool. And now you'd think the answer would be obvious here, but, uh, several years earlier, Dudley had undergone a, you know, a very, he'd been almost drowned at sea when a, a, a like a steamer or a ferry went down in an icy river and he'd been kind of revived from when he was actually dead. So he, he had this sort of feeling that he'd been brought back to the land of the living. Uh, to fulfill a divine mission. And he was also wary about not being near good doctors. So he wants to go, he decides against Tokyo or Kyoto rather, and he decides to go to Liverpool. One of the reasons being is that he thought it would just be a year or so, you know, like consuls, you know, he would be the guy, you know, consuls do they, um, you know, they bail drunken sailors out of prison and they, you know, you know, make sure that people have their passports ready. I mean, it's, it's kind of an easy job. And, you know, he thought he would just do it for a year or so, come back and regain his law practice. What he didn't know was is that he had just inadvertently inherited the most important intelligence posting in the world. And right. that's, uh, that's when, that's where he intersects with, with Bullock for the first time.
0: So you have Bullock sleuthing around trying to build a navy. You have Dudley sort of sleuthing around trying to find what Bullock is up to, and that's your sort of spyby spy thriller here. So you said that the book came together rather quickly after you conceived of the plan, and the plan was stage one, blockade runners, stage two, commerce raiders, stage three, ironclad warships. So you mentioned it a little bit, but before we I guess the overall objective was that the South would form an alliance with Great Britain, and together they would decimate the Northern Navy, and with the South's sort of military prowess on the on the land, they would sail on to victory. So tell us, as we're going to start the implementation of the plan, what are the three What are these boats? What you told us a little bit about blockade runners, but spell it out a little bit. Blockade runners and the ironclads and then the commerce raiders. What they each do.
1: Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned, it's essentially think of it as a three phase process. So at the beginning, uh, Bullock wants to, uh, recruit or build or commission or you know high or just attract a lot of uh, blockade runners. Blockade runners were you know very quite small fast very low ships that were used for essentially like smuggling. I mean that that was, that was their purpose in life. And what they would do is is that his plan didn't quite work out this way, but his plan was to purchase a lot of munitions, uh weapons, even uh battlefield drugs you know, like, like things like ether and morphine and things like that that the South didn't have. Even Bibles, which were distributed to Confederate soldiers, uh, and they would put them on board you know, these things, and they would he would ship them out, and they would sail usually to, um, you know, kind of a way station like Nassau. Nassau was very popular, and from there it was a you know couple of days trip to sneak past any Union frigates uh you know the blockade to sneak past them and race into say charleston or new orleans harbors um bring in their and bring in the munitions and so forth that the south needed for its war effort uh the way back was that they would uh fill their holds with southern cotton and they would again do it the opposite way and come back and then sell that in liverpool uh, a lot of the cotton was was it kind of some of the cotton, at least, was earmarked for Bullock's Secret Service use, that that money was then skimmed off by his sort of dark financier, a man called Charles Prelo, who ran a, a firm called Fraser Trenham, which was a kind of a southern bank with a branch in Liverpool. And, uh, you know, they were the they were the ones who funded this whole thing on commission. And they would uh, you know, so that some of that money would be earmarked for Bullock, who would then take it to a shipyard and then buy more ships and so on. Uh, that's phase one. Phase two is that, you know, you can't win a war just by smuggling cotton and some guns. Can't do it. It's not, it's not going to defeat the North. What will, and this, the, the way the Southerners looked at it was, was, well, look, we should build some very powerful, sleek, fast, uh, commerce raiders. And these are the ships that later became, uh, CSS Alabama. And CSS Florida among, among a couple of others. And their job was to go out there and just be, be essentially be, um, civil war equivalent of U boats. And that is they would just raid and burn and harry, uh, Union merchant shipping or, you know, ravage the, the, the U S whaleboat fleet and, and so on. The idea being that A, they would gain a lot of, uh, you know, needed Food necessities and, and other, and other products. And secondly, it would, uh, induce, again, this is the southern perception of the theory of this whole thing was that it would induce, uh, you know, northern businessmen who were not keen about their cargoes and ships being destroyed, uh, to pressure Lincoln into, uh, or trying to arrange a, a, a ceasefire or an armistice with the, with the South. Say they, they would, their pockets, you know, they, once you started, you know, stealing money from them, you know, all these, all these Yankee merchants, you know, would, uh, would somehow, uh, you know, want peace. Um now if that didn't work, there was the third phase. It was, this was going to be the culminating stage of this. And that was that, uh, Bullock designed, uh, what was one of the, one of the, possibly the most, or one of the most advanced weapons platforms around. And that was, it was, it was an ironclad ship, which were very, very new at the time. Nearly most ships at the time were made out of wood. These were iron and with arm, thick armor. They had a brand new invention, rotating turrets on top. And, uh, they, most prominently they, the reason they were called rams is that they had a, you know, a huge ram (laughs) right at the front, stuck under the water at the prow. And their job, and, and he commissioned two of these and their job was to, basically uh ram union warships and basically drown them at sea so if if the northern merchants didn't do their job then you know the, the south would physically destroy the union navy at sea and that would be an end to the matter so that was it was a kind of a well thought out plan and of course everything went awry and so on but that was the essential strategy or a blueprint that bullock was working on from sort of 1861 to 1865. And he Mm. just went along, he just proceeded along it ruthlessly.
0: So I want to backtrack just one second, which is to have you talk a little bit about the importance of cotton, both in the Southern states and to Britain, because you indicated that Liverpool was essentially a Confederate Stronghold. I think Bullock remarked in one of his letters home, perhaps that when he got to Liverpool, he saw more Confederate bunting than he had seen in Richmond, Virginia. So you don't think of that. It's sort of counterintuitive to, to was to me, but w- what was the reason for that? Tell us about what was called white gold and the, and the cotton
1: exchange. Well, you know, cotton was the lifeblood of the South. I mean, that's fairly, fairly well known. I mean, it was a, it was a mostly rural society and it ran on cotton and the South produced the world's best cotton. I mean, it was, it was so far in excess in quality and quantity of anywhere else that it, you, you couldn't compare it to anything else. The South knows this and that's why, uh, before the war, they started talking about King Cotton. You dare not make war on King Cotton. And the reason they could say that is because Britain, and this is an extraordinary statistic, that roughly 20 percent of uh, the British economy was based directly or indirectly on cotton and specifically Dixie cotton. And, uh, you know, sort of included not only the gigantic the uh, mills of, of Lancashire, that included um all of the ships the huge freighters going back and forth carrying carrying on the trade or pre-war trade and in cotton uh you have the gigantic and very powerful cotton exchanges cotton futures markets and all that kind of stuff plus of course you just have basic things like people you know the bakers who baked the bread for the workers who worked in the in the factories and there were tens and tens and tens of thousands of these people and what would happen is is that raw cotton Would be shipped in from the South, brought to Liverpool, brought to what was called the flags, which was the, the exchange. Uh, and it would there, there would be, it would be broken and bought and sold and so on and sent out to the great mills of, of Lancashire and Manchester and so on. And where it would be, uh, refined and made into, I don't know, high quality sheets and clothing and all this kind of stuff. And then it would be re-exported to the rest of the world it was a massive enterprise this. I mean, if you go around Britain today, a lot of those um you know, if you go to the grand set the city centres of Manchester and Liverpool and even parts of London and so on, you know, you have the the, the grand, you know, halls and the the grand centres of the town, the great meeting halls, the great uh you know uh concert gathering places and so on. A lot of that stuff was paid for by cotton profits. I mean, that was but <laughs> a lot of the train lines and uh And canal works and so on. These were, these were really built to transport cotton for the, you know, to, for, to a great extent. Now the British are well aware of their dependence on southern cotton. Before the war, the magazine, The Economist, still around, still with us, had worried about this saying, you know, if anything goes wrong in America, uh, you know, this is going to, Really affect, really affect us. We could have a revolution here or something, you know, with, you know, 50% unemployment or something. Um, the Southerners, as I mentioned before, you know, were well aware of their power with the power of King Cotton. So at the beginning of the war, the South makes its most, one of its most disastrous miscalculations. And that is in response to the blockade that Lincoln imposes, (laughs) the South declares its own cotton embargo. It's going to voluntarily stop exporting cotton to Britain. And the reasoning behind it is that that will, you know, the threat of this national heart attack that will uh, will induce Britain to siding with the South. See, Now, that was the great plan here. And it's a terrible plan because the one thing you don't do when you're trying to lure a superpower into siding with you is really, really anger them. And (laughs) threaten them internally, essentially with a rebellion or, you know, a workers revolt, which had only just come out of 20 years before, you know, 20 or 30 years before there'd been a lot of industrial problems. So that annoys the Brits intensely. But, you know, and and again, it, and it backfires because what happens instead is that the British, despite being quite overwhelmingly pro-Confederate, pro-Southern, at the time, at the beginning of the war, the government says, you know, sides with declaring neutrality instead rather than siding with one or the other. They're going to stay out of this until a winner begins to emerge and then they'll they'll pick a side. Um, and this dashes Southern expectations and hopes, you know, to, to a great extent. But to, to get back to the Liverpool question of the pro-Confederacy and why it was pro-Confederate, it wasn't just the cotton. It was because Liverpool had, you know, going back to the 18th century had, had slavery links, you know, the, a lot of the, the ship transports and so on had been built in the, in the 18th century. Now the British, of course, had done a colossal amount of work, you know, abolishing the slave trade and, and it put a lot of effort into, you know, eradicating it and crushing it wherever it was found. So, but, so a lot of the, the, the old merchant founders, the great merchant dynasties and the, the shipping lords of Liverpool, you know, went from slavery and they went into cotton instead and they still had those old, family connections with the the plantations down south so there was always a historical connection between Liverpool and the south so that's one of the reasons why there was so much confederate bunting around I mean there was you know it was, the south paid for Liverpool's bills mm. you could say Uh in Britain at large it wasn't that the Brits were were pro-slavery I mean I you really I mean there's a couple of nutters around I guess but they don't really they don't this is 1861 they don't they're not talking it they're not in favor of slavery they just kind of think well it will kind of go away you know in a decade or two you know they'll they'll come to their senses and you know get with the modern world uh for the time being let's just you know keep things on the straight and narrow so there's there's also this sort of ideas of well you know the southerners are the underdogs here and you know we should side with them and against that there are people who would say well the southerners are all just spoiled little brats who took their toys and ran off when they didn't get what they wanted from the north and and then you get other people saying well you know at the end of the day this is just another you know land war between these you know these cousins of ours that we don't really understand you know <laughs> Right. It's just a it's just it's just a regular war over land, and so there's a, that's what, one of the reasons why the British responses to all this are very confused, and that's why they just at the end of the day they just plump for the simplest solution, which is stay out of this. Let's stay neutral.
0: And so, the job of Dudley and his superior Adams was to make sure that Britain stays neutral, and Bullock and his team's job is to try to lure. Britain into an alliance with the South. And so there's this tug of war going on between the the two camps, stay neutral, join up with an alliance with the South. Meanwhile, Bullock has to start building ships in order for him to, to do this. And the Neutrality Act presents some problem, but there is also another act, which is the Foreign Enlistment Act of 1819, which poses a more formidable problem for Bullock and becomes the mechanism by which Dudley tries to defeat Bullock's efforts. So tell us about the Enlistment Act, and then we'll turn to efforts by Bullock to end run it.
1: Uh, The Foreign Enlistment Act was, uh, as you say, it was passed, it was legislation passed in 1819, and it was a very obscure piece of law. And it, until the Civil War, it had never been tested in court. It was one of these pieces of legislation that was originally passed uh, in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars to kind of stop British mercenaries volunteering for service in various South American uprisings against the Spanish. That's what, that's what it was. And since then, everyone, in, the, in the ensuing half century, everyone had pretty much forgotten about it because it was, it was of its time. But... Upon the Declaration of Neutrality, the British Declaration of Neutrality, it suddenly becomes of extreme importance because what the, what the Enlistment Act does, it not only prevents Britons from volunteering for service with, say, with uh, I think it goes, uh, they're, they're not allowed to volunteer for service against countries with which Britain is at peace. And Britain is at peace with both the Union and the Confederacy. So Theoretically speaking, no, no Britain should be volunteering for military service over there. But there was also a naval uh, addendum to it. And which, again, nobody paid any attention to except for one person, James Bullock, because it was critical, because that that naval appendix deals with whether uh, a British uh, shipyard can build a warship for uh, use against the state with which britain is at peace and if you look at that legislation uh, like any legislation it's usually very very intricately drafted uh bullock sits there night after night after night after night reading it through reading it through reading it through and then i think it's saying in the book he found a loophole that you could sail a, sh- uh, a fleet through and that loophole is, is a couple of missing words and that the, the act states and i'll just try and keep this as simple as possible, states that no shipyard can build, equip, furnish, arm, commission a a warship in British jurisdiction or in Her Majesty's jurisdiction for use in a war against a a state with which Britain is at peace. Now, you'd think from that that, no, you can't build any ships that could be used by the South, you know, that this like torpedoes, bullocks plan to build ironclads and commerce raiders right from the get go. But there's a couple of the the missing words are that it doesn't say that you can't equip or furnish or arm a civilian ship built in a British shipyard outside of Her Majesty's jurisdiction. So what Bullock worked out was, is it is so long as he went to shipyards in Liverpool and who are all very friendly with him anyway, and they asked no questions and they he would tell them no lies. And he just commissioned a civilian ship, like, say, the Alabama, that just happened to look a lot like a commerce raider, but had no weapons on board. And there was no Confederate crew and there's no cannons, nothing there. It's just a plain Jane trading ship. Well, that's legal, isn't it? So but then what the plan was is that what he would do is, is that that ship would go out into international waters somewhere near the Azores or you know, over the, wherever in the Atlantic and it would meet, it would rendezvous with a very small and insignificant old freighter that Bullock had bought somewhere in Glasgow or London and fill it with munitions. And they would rendezvous way out to sea and then a Confederate crew would come over and they would transfer all of the cannons and the guns and the munitions and the, uh, the powder and so on. And, and also a Confederate crew and magically. This civilian ship would be transformed into a Confederate warship, all completely legally. So that was, that was what, that was what, uh, Dudley, the union consul was up against. And it took him a long time to figure out how, how Bullock was pulling this off.
0: I was going to say the law said that you couldn't knowingly mm-hmm. build a warship. And so because the Liverpool Pudlians were so pro-Confederacy; they were essentially purposely ignorant. Oh, we didn't know this was going to be a warship. We thought it was going to be a merchant ship, and then, you know, it came to our surprise too that out in the international waters, it somehow got transformed into a uh, commerce raider. And yeah. so there was this facade that was that was going on. And as you say, Dudley realizes this that they are just end running the the statute and he now is really in the heart of the spy be fo- spy part he's got to figure out what ships are being built where they're being built essentially why they're being built and how can he prove to his superiors who then have to prove to the british government that these ships are being built in violation of the of the act that prohibits this. And so maybe we can talk as an example of this of the Oretto, because that was a terrific story of Bullock and Dudley going head to head in the effort to reveal and to disguise what the Oretto was.
1: Yeah, the Oretto was one of Bullock's you know sort of model tricks. And Bullock had a, a certain modus operandi for his commerce raiders and, and many of his other ships, uh, the Eretto being one of them. The, it, it was essentially you set up a, a fake company, you make sure that your name, Bullock's name, is nowhere near any contract. You use a set of cutouts and you know shadow companies and you know, you know, friendly uh businessmen and so on. To essentially create this legend behind this ship that is going to be used. I think the Oretto was going to, was uh, named after a, a Sicilian river, and so I, I think the cover story was that there was a Sicilian firm called uh, whatever it was, uh, and this ship was being built by these these shipyards to do a to to work in the Mediterranean, transporting you know Sicilian goods back and forth from Liverpool and that that was the cover story um the you know and it he had a fake representative in liverpool called john henry thomas who obviously couldn't be traced because it's one of the world's most common names john henry thomas i mean nobody could <laughs> could find this guy but for some reason uh you know people you know this john henry thomas he'd be the one at the customs house registering the ship in his name and uh you know he'd be the one paying for it and all this kind of stuff so, so there's a, it's a very uh you know interesting bit of of sort of uh pantomime here and that's what exactly what it was it was just nobody's really asking that many questions the shipyards you know as you mentioned before they have to knowingly build a ship for war for for martial purposes and if they're not asking any questions because why would they then you know who's who's to say they're not the um the the, you know the liverpool customs inspectors You know, they're not super pro-Southern or anything like that. It's just they, you know, there's a sort of a legal framework they have to work within. You know, their job is to look at the ship and inspect it. And if there's a bunch of if it if it passes all of the the inspections and there's nothing there's no armaments on board or anything like that, then why not? It's got to be good to go. And that was the problem that Dudley had for years. And that was that the British state like if Dudley if Dudley knew through his spies and he would hire detectives and spies to sort of try and infiltrate these shipyards and bring him back information, you know, like, uh, you know, for instance, uh, you know, quotes from overhearing Bullock saying, you know, he was you know, hanging around with a bunch of Confederate friends of his or something at a shipyard for a ship that was ostensibly for a Sicilian, I don't know, olive oil company or something. Uh, <laughs> it seemed that that would ring a lot of alarm bells, for instance, but, the problem is, is that is, is is that Dudley, he can't send in a sort of a some sort of, you know, covert action has special forces to go. What? Raid the ship, uh, you know, blow it up. I mean, what could he do? He couldn't do anything. Um, the union had tried that before he got there with a with a, a sort of a covert operative called Henry Sanford, who was going around attempting to sink ships in the Thames outside of the House of Parliament and and. You know, all sorts of sort of these dark operations and that got him sent back packing back to the US because it was so annoying the British that they were that would induce them to leave behind neutrality. So Dudley is under orders to keep things for God's sake, keep things quiet. So he has to proceed legally. But, you know, when you proceed legally, you have to get affidavits, you have to get evidence, you have to get documents. And Liverpool is is a shut box. It's really hard to break it, especially when you're dealing with someone as canny as as Bullock. So part of the story of the book is, is is that Dudley walks in there thinking that you know right makes right. You know that that he will walk in there and he is clearly a virtuous person, and that all he needs to do is um, you know go to the government and say that ship over there is for the Confederates. And suddenly the the government will leap into action and shut down this whole operation. But of course it doesn't work like that. So he's got to learn how to become more Fox. Like he's got to learn how to combat Bullock on his own turf and on his own terms. And that's part of the sort of the arc of the book.
0: Exactly. And so Bullock is getting these shipyards to build with willful blindness and purposeful ignorance, and the ships go out to international waters. They get reconverted. They get converted to Confederate uh, military ships. So the the Oretto that we were just talking about gets rechristened the Florida, and there's another ship that gets rechristened the Alabama, and these become formidable warships for the Confederacy. And Dudley has been unable to prove to England that this is what's going on. This is just a, a mirage. These are really warships in the making. And Dudley can't figure out why this is happening in part because he has a good group of spies working for him, uh, McGuire and others. And you raise the aspect of the story of Victor Buckley, Agent yeah. X. So give us a preview of In this interview, I just want to say, I do not want to spoil the end. This book is, it reads like historical fiction and I want the audience to buy it and see how it turns out, but we have to give them something. So who is, who is Victor Buckley?
1: (laughs) Uh, Victor Buckley is a fascinating creature. As you mentioned, Dudley is always mystified by Bullock for the first couple of years. I mean, it's, it's as if, it's as if the guy can see around corners. He's, he can, he just, it's always as if he knows what Dudley's about to do before Dudley does it. And he can always react in time. At one point, I think he gets the, the, Dudley had finally managed to get the British to move on something and they were about to raid the ship that would become the Alabama. And then just mysteriously, hours before this raid's supposed to happen, the Alabama, by this remarkable coincidence, manages to leave and escape into international waters. Dudley cannot work out how he's doing it. He, it, it doesn't make any sense. It, it was only after the war or, uh, that it became a little clearer what was going on here. And that was, is that uh, Bullock had an inside man. He had a mole, so to speak, at the British Foreign Office in London. And this was a fellow, Victor Buckley, who was a young, you know, a nice enough fellow, um, kind of romantic, a little, you know, he was very well connected. I think he was a, a godson of Queen Victoria. Uh, you know, his, his, I think his mother was a, a girl's daughter. His father had fought at Waterloo as a colonel. I mean, he was a kind of a well-bred young man, but he didn't have any money. He was sort of a, a younger son, which meant that, you know, he wasn't cut out to go into the church and he wasn't cut out to go to Oxbridge either. <laughs> so he went into the foreign office and, uh, you know, he was a kind of a junior clerk there and, but he was on the American desk and he saw everything going between uh lord russell who was the foreign secretary and charles francis adams who was the american minister or ambassador to london and so whenever adams was armed with affidavit's and documents and so on from from dudley he would pass them on to the foreign office um saying could we raid such and such a ship well you know victor buckley agent x saw this stuff and when there was an emergency, he would tip off Bullock the day before or a few hours beforehand that something was going down. And that's how the Confederates managed to keep everything so clean, uh squeaky clean up in Liverpool for so many years. The kind of long story, but there's one point where, where Buckley makes one mistake. And that's how later on he's kind of found out. Buck, um, Bullock makes one mistake. Oh, or- wait, well, Bullock then, well, it compounds. Right. Uh, Bullock then makes, makes a, a couple of mistakes through, he kind of panics because Dudley just got too close for comfort. Got so that's, that's, you know, so, so again, by the end of the war, you know, because Dudley is getting foxier, Bullock is becoming more and more on his back foot. He's, he's not the, the super, one, especially once this mole is kind of exposed, he's not the, uh, you know, he's not the super, he's not the sort of David Copperfield super magician that everyone thought he was. Uh, so.
0: Phase one is going along. You have all these blockade runners. Phase two is going along. They've got two pretty formidable ships built, the Alabama and the, and the Florida, that were able to get out of port just in time and then reconfigured on the high seas. And Britain is still neutral, but neutral really means southern leaning. It wasn't really honest fifty-yard line. It was sort of more tilting to the South. But then something happens that I think becomes very formidable. You think it becomes very formidable uh, in the turning of the tide besides getting rid of agent X, which is the emancipation proclamation. And how does that sort of turn the sentiment of the Brits as they start looking at what the Confederates are doing in Liverpool?
1: Well, I discussed earlier that there were very few people in britain who were you know overtly pro slavery it was a kind of a lazy acceptance that it would wither on the vine in the decades to come and you know the british in that in that sense were following their own history You know, they had abolished slavery in in many of their possessions, you know, but it took decades for things to work out. I mean, whether, you know, the owners were compensated by, you know, through taxation. What the British didn't want was, and what they feared, was that if, you know, if the South did liberate all of its slaves for some reason, all of a sudden, then there would be massive slave revolts, and and that would, of course, threaten the the cotton supply. Uh, So when Lincoln actually states... I think it's in September 62. He says, I'm going to emancipate. There's an emancipation proclamation. It's going to take effect uh, in January. Um, the British can't work out whether he's serious or not a school of thought that says that he was just being it was he was just being political he was just saying things to to at a at kind of a low point in union fortunes in order to you know stir up the troops and raise morale and that kind of thing. not many people, including the government i mean lord russell is is inquiring about the of the british ambassador in in washington like basically is, is, is you know is this guy serious is he really going to do this? What are the implications here and it does turn out that Lincoln was very serious about it (laughs) and he goes ahead and he issues the, the proclamation that slaves will be liberated in the entire uh, continent. This actually causes, when it actually happens, as opposed to the apprehension of it happening, you know, there's, there is a massive change. There's a shit, like a huge sea change in British opinion. Dudley had noticed this himself. He was saying, you know, in the in 1861, 1862, there were, I mean, if anything, a, a half a dozen, if that, abolitionist rallies or gatherings in England, in Britain, and they were not they were pretty sparsely attended, they were mostly consisting of, uh, you know, Methodists and dissenters and some Quakers and all this kind of stuff. And it was, you know, it was a fairly small activist crowd. And but after it, after the emancipation, beginning in 1863, uh, the number of abolitionist rallies in Britain, I mean, it rockets. It goes up into, I I, I can't remember the exact number, but, you know, in, into the near triple digits. And Dudley notices it himself, even in the, the stronghold of Liverpool, which is the, which is, you know, the fortress of the Confederacy in, in England. You know, there were rallies with, Many, many thousands of people attending in the great halls and, and gathering places that Dudley had never seen before. It had never happened before and these are working people there they are merchants they are e there's even some you know peers and aristocrats uh you know siding with with this great moral crusade and so and it's a, from that moment that Bullock is not is on his back foot; he is at a disadvantage he doesn't have the wind in his sails anymore you mm-hmm. see. Um, he's struggling. And so he's got it things be, and so Dudley just begins to find it easier to persuade the government to do stuff against Bullock, whereas before they would just have a hands off approach.
0: And so as we sort of wind toward the, the climax, that sentiment, that shift in sentiment, I think is illustrated in the phase three effort to build and sail out to the Confederacy one of these ironclad rammer warships. And maybe you could take us out in a way by telling us about the Brave brothers and Saeed Pasha and the whole story around the ironclad, because it's, it's about as interesting a mystery as uh, you've unraveled. In the book. Yeah, it was
1: very difficult to get into the, into the weeds on this. It took a, took quite a long time to figure out what was going on here because it's so, uh, it's such an obscure incident, uh, but also a fascinating one. Essentially the, um, these are, you know, look, the basic problem is, is that if you're building <laughs> an advanced weapons platform with rotating turrets and iron sides and a ramp, you cannot use your usual trick of saying, oh, these are civilian ships. I mean, they're obviously warships Uh, sorry Bullock has to change his plan usually he's come up with a couple stories about civilian companies and all this kind of stuff this time he comes up with a more audacious one he says you know if a government uh can be found that we can say is has commissioned these warships then it's all okay they'll we'll just you know take them off their hands and raise a confederate flag in their ours he has to find a broker and he has to find a government willing to take them on, you see. And he does just by happenstance, you know, one person knows each other, word gets around. And uh, there is a fellow uh, of a a rather small and dubious French financial house in Paris called, you know, Barvet and company. And it's run by two brothers. The major one is Francois Barvet, who was very pally with um, the the Pashas of Egypt who were trying to break away from Ottoman rule. And and, and it was a legitimately sound, sounding story in that the Pasha of Egypt wanted to commission a couple of warships for his nascent navy. And he was using Mr. Bravet, Monsieur Bravet, as his broker, who had gone to Liverpool and was going to buy these ships, you see. Now, the money was supplied by Bullock. Uh, and the the deal was is that is that the, you know, the Egyptians didn't have time for the Navy. They didn't have enough money for this. Uh, and that Brave was just going to transfer ownership of these ships to, to Bullock or with, you know, after he got paid a, a, you know, a fat commission, you see, Um it all begins to, even it's it's such a good story that even Dudley is persuaded by it, that there is, that there's a, you know, Frenchman dealing with Egyptians. I mean, at the time, the, the boy emperor of China was commissioning warships in Liverpool. So why not the Pasha of Egypt? It, it does make sense. I mean, not even Bullock would be that audacious as to build two massive warships right in sight of, of Her majesty's government. But he did. And, uh, you know, so the chapter or the chapters about it are about how this plan comes around and how Dudley uncovers what's actually happening until finally at the end, through Dudley's efforts, they uncover one piece of paper in a bank safe in Paris that has that has the smoking gun evidence and that's that's really the beginning of the end for Bullock and Dudley manages to, to stop those ships from leaving Liverpool and that's you know things things are winding down then
0: yeah and I guess what happens when they document that Bullock is behind the building of these ironclads and they see the sort of financial network. That Bullock has been working through for the commerce raiders and and the like, they realize that his fingerprints are on everything, which empowers Lord Russell to really take a more proactive role in making sure that this doesn't repeat itself, and so the efforts to not only build the ironclads but also to perhaps get more of these commerce raiders really just comes to
1: a to a crashing halt. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the British are really angry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they can see. I mean that Lord Russell always suspected it, but he could never quite prove it. But you know, that, that Bullock has been running rings around them for years and has made fools of them. And uh, you know, Dudley Dudley was right all along. I mean, he had Bullock's number, he just couldn't he just couldn't bring him in until finally he does bring him in and, and, you know, the, and the government shuts down the Confederate operation in, in sort of 1864, 1865. Yeah. Um, so it's a great sort of story about, you know, um, you know, perseverance under, <laughs> you know, under, under, under a lot of stress. Um, but it, you know, it does work out for, for, for Dudley, though at the end of the story, Bullock, well, according to Dudley, gets away with it too much. And so Dudley, Resolves that by hook or by crook he's going to he's going to take down Bullock somehow, and you know that's, that's part of the, the the last chapter or two. Like finally, there's there's some retribution here,
0: and we're going to leave uh, it. We're going to leave it. The wall. That's right. We're going to leave it to the reader to see: did Dudley get the last laugh, or did Bullock sort of still escape with just a slap on the wrist? But it, it is an important lesson here that playing Lord Russell for a fool around the commerce raiders didn't work out so well in the long run. They got two ships, but after that, the hammer came down.
1: Um, Yeah. Yeah. Don't annoy, uh, you know, you know, earls who are also foreign secretaries, I think is the, (laughs) the the life lesson here.
0: That's right. Well, the other thing is uh, when you said there was sort of an own goal mistake by the South, when they say, well, we're going to hold back our cotton, uh, Britain says, well, wait a second. What about Egypt? What about India? You know? And so now when you go to buy your cotton sheets, the premier marking of it is Egyptian cotton, you know? So they sort of like, well,
1: yeah, no, exactly. The British, again, the British were not stupid. They, they don't, nobody likes to be dependent on one supplier. So, For quite a some time before the war, the British had said, well, you know, we have an empire. Can't we use it for something? So they had tried to, uh, develop Egyptian cotton and Indian cotton. And it was, it was very slow, but the stuff just didn't have the quality that the, the Southerners had. I mean, it just, it just couldn't compete. After the war, it begins to take off and that's where you start getting, you know, you know, Egyptian cotton and you have the beginnings of a whole new industry in Egypt and, and India with this, but it's, it's partly because they just want to get off that, that southern, southern teat, which yeah. come close to ruining them.
0: Right. Yeah. Having one market is not a good thing when 40% of your exports and 20% of your economy is dependent on one. Well, exactly.
1: Pro- yeah. yeah. You need to, you need to outsource
0: a little more. Exactly. Diversify. <laughs> so my, my last question is, How are these people lost to history? Because as you read the book and you realize, had Bullock succeeded, had he got those ironclads out, the U.S. Navy had nothing that they could counteract them with. They would be, you know, some Jules Verne-like ship that would have just completely destroyed the Navy of the North. So how is it as important as Bullock and Dudley's role were that no one knows who they
1: are? Uh, it's a, well, it's a good question. They've faded into the background. They were, they were the kind of, these kind of, again, they were heard of if you were something of a connoisseur of historical <laughs> minor personalities. <laughs> um, and, uh, it's just that they, Dudley never really talked about it after the war. And all of his reports, thousands and thousands of pages of reports on his intelligence work were locked away in the National Archives. So I had them digitized and, you know, I read them all and that, that's how the, a lot of the story comes about. You can actually see week to week how Dudley is operating and what he's doing. And, you know, and if you go to, uh, Dudley's papers, which again are in the, uh, the Huntington, museum and library in, in california you can he's actually kept things like the receipts that his detectives were writing his spies were writing to you know about payoffs to various you know sailing riggers and things like that you know for information and so on the so and uh so there's a, there's a huge amount of material it's just that he was a very obscure figure and same with bullock bullock you know after the war kind of just gets out of it and the whole episode is swept under the carpet. It was embarrassing for the, the British didn't want to talk about it. Uh, the Union didn't want to talk about it and the South, well, they didn't want to talk about it. So it's, I wouldn't say it's a conspiracy or anything like that. It's just that it, it's, um, it, it just kind of got, I wouldn't say forgotten about, but just sort of bypassed in a way. Uh, and that's, that's what I found so interesting about it. That once you start putting all of this material together and there's a huge amount of it and there's a, a story Comes out of, it. but as, as I said earlier, it's a very complicated story, which also didn't help. It's not like, uh, it's not as if it was just lying there obvious. You, you really have to put a lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, join a lot of dots to make it, to make the story, at, you know, work as, as well as it does.
0: Well, I can tell you as a reader that I am grateful that you did put it all together because it is a fascinating read. The book is called the lion and the fox. Two Rival Spies, and the Secret Plot to Build a Confederate Navy. Alexander Rose, thank you so much for joining me today on That Said, and thank you very much for writing this fascinating book.
1: Well, thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at com. Thanks so much for listening. For that said, I'm Michael Zeldin.